This is 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 35, All the Reason One Needs. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Prepaid VoicePad, a neutral hardware from Second Thoughts with a cost of two that provides one recurring credit for playing events. The flavor text says, A VoicePad is a personal access device with most of its functions ripped out. Just about all it's good for is making voice calls and managing your contacts. The only reason to even have one is for its anonymity, which, for a certain kind of person, is all the reason one needs. I don't know how much that actually fits into anything to do with this episode, but the massive bulk of the episode is going to be analyzing or reading through an article that was uh, provided, published on Stimhack, uh, couple months before where we are in the current run of the 2.1 group, but it focuses on the first couple of turns in the game. So it's like a much more extended version of the satellite uplink article that we shared a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Before we get to that, though, let me hit on a couple of other small segments. Anonymous tip, the top 50 countdown. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the big boy a few months ago made a tier list where he took all of the Fantasy Flight rebooted cards, right? So nothing from the boosters and sorted them by tier list. And his tiers, rather than being the classic S, A, B, C, D, are instead just from 10 to 1, where 10 is a very powerful card and 1 is a completely useless card. He shared some of those, all the 10s, all the 9s, all the 1s, in the general channel of the Reboot Discord server a few months ago. But what he has done more recently is taken all the 10s, 9s, 8s, and a few of the 7s, and actually sorted them into a countdown. And so I think he went through, maybe went through all the sevens, got up around the, the, the top 80 or 100 cards or so for Corp and for Runner. Right? Not mixing the two together. These are two separate lists. And what he's been doing is every day presenting one card from each list. He started out at the beginning by offering just a quick snapshot of positions 51 through 60. And since then, he has been, again, counting down from number 50, headed for number one. These are the best cards in the game. I think it fits in the anonymous tip segment because, I mean, you're basically just telegraphing, here are good cards to consider in often in in common situations. So starting next week, I will actually provide a countdown of the the Corp and the Runner cards. I'll go 10 at a time, so I'm letting enough time to pass for him to get sufficiently ahead that I won't catch up, because of course he's only going seven a week, one one per day. But there's nothing that's stopping you from getting a sneak peek at that countdown by joining the Reboot Discord server and heading to the Top 50 Countdown um, channel. Good stuff in there. Good conversation. Red herrings. A couple of errors from the last episode. Normally I might stick this on the end of the episode, but um, since, again, the bulk of the episode is just going to be this article, I figured I'd put it here where it's actually going to be 
you know, the, uh, the official mea culpa. For uh, one error I made was in the XML feed for a bit there, episode 33 disappeared. That should be fixed now. Uh, the other two errors were when it came to the ice. One of them was Muckraker. Remember, Muckraker has three subroutines that each have a trace for a tag, and the fourth subroutine will end the run if you're tagged. However, if you break the first three subroutines, and you're not tagged already, then the fourth subroutine doesn't do anything. So I missed that subtlety in my analysis. So I said that it would be six credits for your standard killer like Garot or even Ninja to be able to break. But in actuality, they don't need to break that fourth subroutine. So that means the tax is actually only five credits for a typical killer, which isn't a huge difference, except, you know, here's the standard disclaimer that one credit often is a significant difference. It certainly puts it down a rank. Um, previously, I said that there were only, I think, four centuries, no, four taxing pieces of ice, no, four centuries that were more cost, cost more to break than Muckraker. Well, now that it's only five credits to break, well, it's really, there's like seven or eight now. So it's a very tight bunching when you move one credit in one direction or another. The other mistake I made was on Wotan where I said that it cost Corroder 10 credits to break. That is not right, because Corroder's strength is 2, Wotan's strength is 10, so it costs 8 for Corroder to get to strength, and then there are 4 subroutines. So the actual cost is 12. Now, in my working spreadsheet, I had the cost correct. I went back to correct it, and I'm like, oh, no, I have it right. It's 12. It says 12 for Corroder. I think um, maybe, what was it? Not Morningstar, but the uh, Battering Ram, I think maybe is only 11. Uh, there's another one that's 13. Inti is 22, as I said. But apparently when I copied that over into the sheet that I share uh, with you, that's linked in the show notes where I have all the ice that has been discussed so far on the show. Apparently I looked at where it said that Wotan was a res 10 and a strength 10, and I just put down 10. But it's not. It's 12. So Wotan actually is the most taxing ice, even more so than Janus. Janus's tax is 10. So there are a couple of corrections, and thanks to the big boy for catching both of those. If you hear any mistakes, please never hesitate to let me know. I always want to make sure I get my information right. So I know sometimes I'm listening back through the episode, and I hear that I say killer when I mean sentry, or I say code gate when I mean barrier. You know, I think most of the time in those situations, you can catch from the context what I mean. But when there's an actual factual error like these, please do bring them to my attention. I do appreciate it. Archived Memories Playing the Opening by Alex Rockwell, a username Alex Frog. When you go to stimhack.com and you look at their classic articles, this one is the earliest one on the site. It's dated August 30th, 2013, which means that it arrived before Opening Moves was officially released, but after it had been released at Gen Con a few weeks earlier. Now, currently, we are in the point where Second Thoughts has been released, so we're about, let's say, six weeks down the line from where this article was written. But still, it largely, I've been meaning to try to find a way to work this in uh, for a long time. I've had it on my list of things to do for a long time. Time has just gotten away from me here the last couple of months. And I was going to stick it into last week's episode before I realized how incredibly long it is. It's pretty long. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It, for the most part, still applies even in Reboot. And I think, uh, again, in principle, it ought to apply probably even if you're playing Null Signal's version of Netrunner as well, because it's, uh, you know, it's just the, the, uh, the fundamental concepts of what you're evaluating when you're making decisions in the early game. So, here we go. 
We've talked a lot in the past about deck building and card evaluation. Let's take some time to look more at actual gameplay, specifically how to do well in the opening phase of the game. I like to think of the opening as being the time from the start of the game until when the corp has constructed some defense on each important server, R&D, R&D, HQ, maybe archives, and the primary remote. Additionally, it is still the opening until the corp can afford to res all this ice. Simply putting it there isn't enough if you can't pay for all of it. The opening is the period of free accesses. It's the time when the runner is capable of getting into some server for an access for a cost of only a click. In general, the corp should do everything it can to get out of the opening quickly, while the runner wants to prolong it for as long as possible. Entire runner strategies are devoted to abusing the opening phase of the game, while the desire to leave the opening is the reason that corps include economy ice like Pop-Up or Caduceus, as well as cheap end-the-run ice like Ice Wall and Enigma. As the runner, no opening plan is complete without aggression. You have several simultaneous goals. Scout out the lay of the land, the ice defenses placed by the corp. Gain free accesses. Accesses of cards that might possibly be agendas for the cost of only a click. Lay the groundwork for your long-term economy development, such as Cotty Jones, Wildside, Personal Workshop, Daily Casts, Professional Contacts, etc. Finally, you would like to extend the opening if possible. Face-checking is the process of blindly running into face-down ice without icebreakers and seeing what happens. As terrible as that might sound, it usually has good results for the runner. I'll parenthetically add here, that's kind of a lot of what that article from David Sutcliffe was about, about aggressive running, what's to fear, that for the most part, there's not really a lot to fear on the very first turn, for example. Back to this article. You might find out that the corp doesn't want to res a piece of ice. This tells you one of the following things is true. The corp cannot afford that ice. That ice is a program trashing ice which currently doesn't do anything. You'll probably not want to run it once you have important programs until you also get a sentry breaker. The corp can afford to res the ice, but cannot afford to res all of their ice and they consider that server to be of lower importance than others. The corp is bluffing you. This is the least likely alternative by far, unless you're playing with someone who has a strong history of trying to bluff you. Example 1. It is turn 1. The corp is Wayland. They played ice on HQ and R&D, and took a credit, leaving them at six credits. You run HQ, and the corp doesn't res the ice. What information do you gain? The chance that the corp has no agendas in hand is increased. The chance that this piece of ice is either expensive or trashes programs is increased. The chance that the corp cannot afford to res both his ice is increased. Maybe it's a bastion and he could res it if needed, but that would make him unable to res the enigma on R&D and you might then hit him with an indexing or something. The chance that it's a cheap ice, economy ice, or anti-face check ice like pop-up, shadow, caduceus, ice wall, or neural katana is greatly decreased. Given that your opponent is Wayland, what is that ice most likely to be? It is probably either expensive, Archer, Hadrian's Wall, Tollbooth, Swarm. 
moderately expensive and not currently punishing, Bastion, Data Raven, Grim, or something more rarely seen in Wayland, like maybe Roto Turret. It's probably not Ice Wall, Shadow, or Caduceus. Maybe it's Archer? This is probably useful information to remember for later. You now know information about that ice. You should try to use these modified probabilities later on in the game to avoid making a mistake. Example 2. It is turn 2. The corp is NBN. They have unresed eyes on HQ, R&D, and a remote. They played a card into the remote last turn. They have six credits. You play out an R&D interface and run R&D. The corp does not res. What information do you gain? It is significantly more likely that the card in the remote is an agenda. The corp probably cannot afford the ice guarding it and the ice on R&D, and has chosen to allow you to get a double R&D access because it's not as bad as losing the agenda. It is more likely that the R&D ice is large, like Flare or Tollbooth, or is a program trashing ice, like Ichi or Grim. It's very unlikely that the ice is cheap, or is an economy ice, like Pop-Up, Shadow, Hunter, Caduceus, Icewall, etc. What should you now do? If you have ways of getting into the remote server, trying to do so is a good idea because it's probably an agenda, though maybe it's a melange, which you also want to kill. Face-checking the remote, and then trying to get into it by playing a breaker and running, using inside job, etc., would be a good plan. If your plan for getting into the remote requires the rest of the turn, don't face-check it first. For example, if you need to play a breaker, play tinkering, and run, do that. If you have inside job, first run the server, then inside job it if they res an ice that stops you. Don't simply inside job the face-down ice. If you don't have ways of getting into that remote, you should probably run it anyway. A likely result is that the corp spends money stopping you. Either they are then too poor to score an agenda, giving you more time to find an answer, or they score it but go broke doing so, which gives you free accesses of R&D and HQ the following turn. If you are able to eliminate at least one of the R&D cards, running it again is a good idea. Running HQ is also a good plan. Example 3. It is turn 1. The corp is Haas Bioroid. They drew an extra card, then played ice to HQ and R&D. They have six credits due to engineering the future's power. You run HQ. The corp reses a bastion. What information do you gain? It is likely that the corpse hand contains agendas and or other low-cost-to-trash cards they care about, like melange. They rezzed an ice for the majority of their money just to stop you, even though it might stop them from rezzing R&D ice. It is more likely that the R&D ice is very cheap. They might be able to afford both ice because it's an ice wall or pop-up. What should you do now? If you have a way to negate the bastion and get to HQ, that's a good idea. You'll have a strong chance of agendas. For example, playing a sneak door. Alternately, playing corroder, running HQ, and playing emergency shutdown on the bastion. Or playing parasite onto the bastion so that it will die soon, exposing those HQ agendas to you. It's worth running R&D. The worst that can happen to you here is that it's a pop-up window. If the corp reses Ice Wall, you'll know that getting a corroder will be very important. 
If the corp doesn't res the ice, you will have confirmed that it's at least cost three, and you will have reinforced the belief that HQ is really important right now because the corp resed defenses there, which prevented them from resing R&D ice, meaning that HQ seemed more important to them. Example four. It is turn one. The corp is Jinteki personal evolution. They played an ice on HQ, installed two remote servers, and said go. They have five credits. As the runner, you have an opening hand of daily casts, Corroder, one of two in the deck, Yog, your only codebreaker in the deck, Sure Gamble, and Plascrete Carapace. What should you do? You almost certainly should not run HQ, click one, with this hand against Jinteki. The chances of hitting Neural Katana and losing key breakers is very high. If this occurs and you continue, you are at risk of hitting Fetal AI. Running R&D is okay. A snare hurts you but breaks the opponent. Running the remotes is a better idea, but is most likely to result in wasting time on economy cards. However, you must check these remotes some reasonable percentage of the time, or else you open yourself up to opponents placing undefended three difficulty agendas against you and then scoring them. The best plan is probably a mixture of running those remotes some, and playing key cards and economy boosters out of your hand and drawing back up. Playing against Jinteki is quite different from playing against other corps. It is riskier to face check with key cards in your hand. While against other corps, especially HB, those programs are safer in your hand at the start, against Jinteki, they are safer in play. In general, the best play is to develop long-term economy cards and key breakers or other things out of your hand, draw up, and then run a bit later once your hand contains cards of less vital importance. Let's say that you draw two cards, play daily casts, and play corroder. On turn two, the Jinteki player reses one of the remotes, a pad campaign. He plays an ice to R&D, and takes one credit. The corp has five credits. What information do we gain? The other remote almost certainly isn't a pad campaign. If we can get the corp below four credits and then run it, that is a great plan because we would be safe to snare. However, it's less likely to be a three difficulty agenda. It's still worth running. The R&D ice is less likely to be a neural katana than the one on HQ. It is more likely that the corp just drew it off his deck. If you ran R&D last turn and saw an ice, it is very likely to be that ice. After all, why did the corp play only one ice on turn one? Since it wasn't for the purpose of installing two pad campaigns, it might be because he only had one ice. On our next turn, we run R&D. The corp reses Himitsu Bako, putting them at three credits. We run the face-down remote. We hit a fetal AI and lose three cards and pay two credits. This is acceptable. Note that running it without two credits would have been a mistake. We now draw back up, since we have lost cards. We draw into a Cotty Jones and are happy. Example 5. We are Andromeda, and we played out Sure Gamble, Daily Casts, Desperado, and a Dirty Laundry to Archives on turn 1. After turn 2, the Corp, Haas Bioroid, now has iced R&D, HQ, and a remote, and placed a card into the remote. They have 9 credits. Our remaining hand is Data Sucker, Corroder, Ninja, 
Plascrete Carapace, and R&D Interface. We decide that we think the remote contains an economy asset. So we install DataSucker and run archives three times, getting three credits from Desperado and three DataSucker tokens. The Corp reses Adonis campaign, draws two cards, and ices archives. They still have nine credits. What do we do? Let's consider the game state. We would love to kill the Adonis, denying the Corp. We have 14 credits currently, as well as income from Desperado, and four credits left on daily casts. If we can break the Corp, we can drop R&D interface and pound R&D with its ice unrest. If we run into Roto Turret or Ichi, we risk our data sucker. Running into Ichi with clicks left isn't too bad, however. We play Ninja to avoid losing data sucker to Roto Turret and run the Adonis campaign. The Corp reses Bastion, putting them to five credits. We play Corroder and run Adonis campaign. We shrink Bastion twice with data sucker tokens, break it, and kill Adonis. The Corp places another ice on the remote, places another card in the remote, and takes one credit, bringing them to six credits with the EHB power and paying for the extra ice. What should we do? If the newly installed card is an agenda, the Corp won't want to break themselves. If we run centrals and the Corp doesn't res ice, we get free accesses, data sucker counters, desperado money, and we become more sure the card in the remote is an agenda. We run HQ. Now, imagine you're the Corp. The card you put in the remote is a 3-2 agenda. You have another 3-2 agenda in hand. What do you want your HQ ice to be right now? Ice wall is nice. It lets you protect the agenda, stop data sucker desperado gain, and still afford to protect the agenda and play. Pop-up window is nice. It gains you money, helping you to defend everything while limiting the runner's gain. If he goes through it and doesn't hit the agenda, he is less likely to keep hammering HQ and find that agenda than if you res nothing. Something like Wall of Static or Eli or Bastion is disappointing here, even if the runner doesn't have Corroder. It eats your money and you can't res other things. Something huge is very disappointing. Back to the game. The Corp declines to res the ice. We look at a card in their hand and see a Heimdall 2.0. What do we do? Running HQ again is strong. We just got a credit and a data sucker token and an access for one click. Doing it again would be great. Running R&D is strong. Our opponent is reluctant to res and we might be able to punish it. Running the remote is strong. Most likely they will have to res the ice. It only stops us if it's a code gate, and we get into something they want to protect. All runs are amazing here. What isn't amazing? Sitting there and not running. Pressure is good especially because we have built our deck to pressure well. Game path A. Let's say we run R&D. The Corp reses pop-up window, going up to seven credits. We pay and get in, seeing a melange, which we trash. While pop-up window might leave the Corp vulnerable, it doesn't leave them as vulnerable as not being able to res anything. It also helps them to get to a point where they can put another ice on R&D, score their agenda, and res everything. 
what should we do now? Play R&D interface. Run R&D. See two cards. It is now the corpse turn. If he has affordable eyes, he could put it on R&D. But the likely play here is to score the agenda. We hit R&D again, and HQ as well, and then the corp puts up more ice. Game path B. The corp reses Ichi 1.0, going down to one credit. What should we do? We have two clicks left, but the corp is poor. We probably want to break the Ichi with Ninja and go run HQ again and run the remote. We break Ichi with Ninja, but not the Trace, since we are Andromeda. Although, parenthetically, this is not true in Reboot because Andy has no link. Get in and see a card and get a credit and a data sucker token. We run HQ. The Corp doesn't res, and we get the agenda. We run the remote. The Corp doesn't res, and we find out that it was a melange in this game, which we kill. Next, the corp draws and takes three credits, putting them to four. What do we do? We run HQ. If they res, we run archives, building up data suckers and money. Once stopped, we draw cards to continue our economic development and hope to find an emergency shutdown. We would like to run HQ, shut down the Ichi, play R&D interface, and run R&D. Keep pressuring the corp. If we can combine that shutdown with a count siphon, preventing the corp from resing the Ichi and allowing free R&D hits, even better. If we can get a forged activation orders, or parasite, even better. We can kill the Ichi and go get free R&D hits. Hopefully, these examples will help you learn to play better in the opening. You can see the value of early pressure. In our extended example, we are doing far, far better in this game and getting many more accesses than we would have in a strategy devoted to simply building up a bunch early in the game. You can also see how the corp is desperate for certain cards. They badly want cheap ice that does something relevant taxes or gives economy, punishes face-checking, or ends runs. And big ice, in this scenario, is just a liability. It looks like it's defending a server, but it actually isn't. A good runner will expose the fact that this big ice might as well not be there at all. We also see that as the corp, we would love a hedge fund. Play a hedge fund, and suddenly all scenarios where we can't resin ice because it would expose some even more important server disappear. disappear. We simply res all the ice, and we are into the mid-game. Please, never cut hedge fund from your decks. The best corp starts involve having hedge fund. Don't increase your chances of weak starts. Will your pad campaign give you more money? After six turns, if it lives? Yes. Does that bonus one credit you now have matter when you've been hemorrhaging free accesses all game? We can also see that runner cars which would perpetuate this early game state are amazing. If we parasite an ice to death, we get to keep hammering the corp until he both draws, places, and pays for a replacement. He might fail to draw it, or be unable to pay for it. At worst, we extend the opening somewhat and delay the corp from achieving their goals. If we can parasite or shut down some of the ice, or if we can account siphon the corp to break him and then run things with unrest ice, we will extend the phase of the game where the corp can't accomplish much and is hemorrhaging free accesses to us. What things should we not do as a runner in these scenarios? We should not run through an already rezzed ice that is draining to us 
without sufficient reason to think we will succeed in getting something good from it. If the corp gets a resed bastion, and we can break it for three credits with a corroder, we shouldn't just randomly keep running it without good reason. Like we are Gabe, and hitting HQ gives the money back. Or we have an R&D interface, so the access is doubled. If the runner is taking non-free accesses repeatedly in the opening, the runner will run out of steam, and the corp will survive to the mid-game, having given up less accesses to the runner. Fewer accesses means fewer points on average, less info, fewer chances to trash something like that melange or trap off the deck. What things should the corp be doing to survive this phase better? Anytime that the corp can bait the runner into running something safe is great. Maybe the opponent isn't criminal and you have only one agenda. You could leave HQ uniced, instead making a remote and putting the agenda in it. Time spent running your HQ is thus wasted. Creating a remote with an economy, or face-check punishing ice, and putting an annoying card into it, is another great plan. For example, making a server of Caduceus in front of Bernice Mai. The runner running this is amazing. You get money off the Caduceus and punish the runner with a Bernice tag slowing them down. If they don't run it, you can stick a melange in there next turn and try to induce a run. Of course, you should execute this strategy with different cards placed into it. Sometimes an agenda, sometimes a melange, sometimes a Bernice Ma. You don't want to become predictable. Sometimes you just slap down whatever card you have. Sometimes you have several choices and you pick one. Drawing the runner into remotes that slow them down is a great way to blunt early central server attacks. You also want to consider the opening heavily when building your corp deck. You need your deck to have some face-check punishing ice and some cheap ways to end the run. Decks of lots of large ice get walked all over by aggressive runners. You want to include burst economy in your deck as it helps you escape the opening. Burst economy like hedge fund or celebrity gift also makes those early bigger ice a lot more palatable. You can res them and not be broke. A deck with plenty of big ice needs to be very good at burst economy. Ice that punishes running is actually more beneficial at blunting early aggression than end-the-run ice. If you res a neuro katana, and they get in once, but they both don't want to run it again without a sentry breaker, and they lost three cards, they have to pause and recover. Similarly, inflicting tags can be a great way to slow down the runner economy, blunting their attack. While the resed ice doesn't technically stop the runner, it is just as effective because it makes them not want to run the server. It makes the run uneconomical, not free. And early paid accesses of cards aren't very good for the runner. It's early free accesses that are devastating to the corp. If the runner has to pay a moderate cost, then they can only do that so many times before falling behind the corp economically and having to stop. It's worth giving up a few accesses in order to get ahead economically. That's the whole goal as corp early. Give up as few accesses as possible while stabilizing. If the runner is voluntarily making runs through ice they have to pay for early on, they are accepting a much smaller number of early accesses. And as the corp, I'm happy with that. I am much happier with that situation than one in which the runner instead draws and develops, finds the parasites or shutdowns, wrecks my eyes, and continues taking free accesses. I am especially happy as corp if their runs are through a pop-up shadow or caduceus that is giving me money. This really accelerates the corp's early game, 
lets me race by advancing agendas and helps me afford a better defense as soon as I draw it, bringing me into a strong mid-game state. As runner, pay attention to the things you learn by the corpse decisions to res or not res ice. As corp, against a strong player who pays attention to these, occasionally bluff. There is a cost to bluffing. You have to make a suboptimal play right now, but if it makes you less predictable or results in the runner making a bad run due to thinking an ice is something else, it's worth it. However, if the opponent isn't a good enough player to have any idea what your bluff means and won't change their play based on it, then play the best straight-up move instead. Good opening game runner cards. Strong decks will help the runner perform an efficiently aggressive opening attack. Some cards that are great for this include Data Sucker, Parasite, Medium, Desperado, Emergency Shutdown, Account Siphon, R&D Interface, Maker's Eye, Indexing. How many of these cards are you playing? What factors do most good runner decks share? Lots of these cards. These aren't the only important cards, of course, or the only good early attack cards, just some of them. But these are all good at increasing early weakness, pressuring early weakness, or gaining additional benefit from early weakness. Oh yeah, and every one of them is a good card later in the game, too. Cards that help provide strong early pressure and are good later? Yes, please. That's so much better than the conditional only good in one phase of the game cards. This is true for all factions, not just criminals. You don't have to be a criminal for early face-checking to be a good idea or for free accesses to be good. And if your deck of some other faction has no early game, that's a problem. Maybe you can overcome it in other ways, but you probably can't. You would probably do better to have at least some early pressure. Did you think that you were supposed to play noise by doing nothing but install viruses to mill cards for the first seven turns without making a run? You're giving up a lot of potential pressure and ability to ravage weakly defended early centrals, hopefully getting some points and reducing the remaining target of points you need to mill to finish off the game greatly. What you shouldn't do is expensive early pressure. Those decks where you are chaos theory, and you put out a snowball, and you spend all your time taking three credits and then running their wall of static on R&D for one card because you were trying to get early pressure? No, that's not good pressure. That's letting the corp get way ahead of you for a minimal number of accesses. Once you see that the R&D ice is a wall of static, you don't run through it over and over for only one card. You try to hit other places for free. You try to deal with the wall of static in an efficient way. You get out an R&D interface so that it's worth attacking. You do something more efficient than paying three credits for one access in the early game. Paying a significant amount of money to access things is something you do later on with an economy and a card to provide bonus accesses because the possibility of free accesses has passed by. If that Chaos Theory deck saved up and hit R&D with an indexing, then ran in again for the agenda, now we're talking. If they instead uncovered your HQ ice, put out the right breaker, hit you with an account siphon, and then accessed R&D for free, possibly with the indexings and R&D interfaces, so much better. Now we have an actual aggression plan. Now we have a real early game. Why are so many players excited about new Shaper decks with Desperado, Parasites, Data Suckers, and, and Otman? They have strong early games in addition to the great Shaper late game. It's not just that they can break lots of ice efficiently later with Data Sucker and Otman. It's that they can do that and they have strength throughout the game whereas most earlier Shaper decks mostly just had to build up early. It's not just the Ottman breaking things, 
It's the total package provided all game long. Building your corp deck for the early game. Strong corp decks defend well in the opening most of the time and try to reach the mid game reasonably intact. They play good face check punishing ice, cheap and the run ice, and have the ability to distract the runner with a remote. They don't play tons of conditional ice, tons of ice that is expensive, or tons of ice that only turn on later in the game, like program trashers, big bioroids, Hadrian's Wall, Tollbooth, Archer, Grim, Swarm, etc. They have more early game ice than just Enigma and Bastion. While big ice can be strong, after the opening, and many decks need it, decks with lots of big ice should contain more ice and more burst economy than normal decks. In order to play more big ice, a deck must increase its total ice count so that it can do it while also maintaining enough early game ice. Thus, a big ice HB deck should really have 23 to 25 ice or so as opposed to more common decks that contain around 18 to 21. The amount of good early game ice will be about the same, while the amount of big ice will increase. And a parenthetical comment from me, that sounds like a lot. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but 23 to 25 ice sounds like I don't think you ever want that many ice. As the Corp, your goal of the opening is to survive and quickly get to the mid-game. Scoring an agenda can be a part of the plan as it both reduces the risk of the runner accessing HQ as well as often giving you significant economic benefits if the right agenda is scored. But most important of all is developing defenses and making money. Summary. You've heard that running early and often is good. Hopefully here you have seen why it's good, what information and other benefits we gain from it, some cards that help make it effective, and also sometimes when it's not good. Spending all your early capital making expensive runs in order to be aggressive is not good. In general, early on you really love running against face-down ice, and you really hate running through face-up ice. As the runner, you want to maximize running that results in accesses for free and minimize runs through actual resed ice. As the corp, you want to effectively get to a point where all servers have some resed ice without giving away too many free accesses in the process. Those are your primary goals of the opening for both sides. Even if, as a corp, your main early goal is to score agendas while the runner isn't set up. It's nice if you can do that while simultaneously putting up something in defense of centrals. These factors should guide your deck-building decisions, as the opening is one of the most critical parts of the game. They should guide your gameplay as well, trying to maximize early free accesses as runner, or minimize early free accesses as corp. An early free access is strong for the runner. An access that's better than free, due to things like Desperado, Data Sucker, or Gabriel's ability, is amazing for the runner. An early access for a token price is decent for the runner. An early access costing several credits for only one card is a weak trade-off for the runner, which will, on average, increase the corpse chance of winning. If you paid three credits, but got back one credit from Desperado and got one Data Sucker counter, however, that is now only a net token price, and it's still decent. Thanks for reading, and I hope you enjoyed this look into the Netrunner opening. And that is the end of that article on playing the opening from Alex Rockwell, a very prolific writer in the early years of Netrunner.
Uh, of course, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's at stimhack.com. And many of the cards that he discussed in his article will also be linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. Our website is netrunner2.1.com. To get in some games in the Reboot Project, please go to the Discord server. Everybody there is very friendly and is really happy to answer even inane questions, as I can attest to. And you can play online by going to reteki.fun. If you want to get a hold of me, then links are in the show notes or wherever you might have seen this episode posted, you can reach out to me there. In the Astroscript pilot program, we're moving on to part five of clones. We'll talk about clonal health maintenance. And then there are a couple of little, uh, I don't know, like little asides kind of peppered throughout the text, little boxes from the novice's guide to clonership. Clonership, you see. Uh, there was one of these that I covered earlier back in episode 26, and there are two more that I'm going to tack on to the end of this one. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Clonal Health Maintenance Clones are hardy and diligent workers, and they go about their assigned work without complaint. Due to their conditioning, clones from most lines work until interrupted, continuing in the tasks assigned by their operators. While this devotion to a task is commendable and efficient, it often leads to long-term issues if owners do not perform the necessary maintenance on their property. Clone warranties are designed around reasonable workloads and routine maintenance. Those who fail to comply with the recommendations found in the model's clonership manual may inadvertently void a clone's warranty. This can result in substantial repair costs or even a substantially shorter functional lifespan than would normally be expected. Even the most economical and multi-purpose clone lines routinely incorporate a range of structural enhancements over an unmodified human. These include a bolstered immune system, heightened endurance, and a genome free of any factors associated with genetic disease. Clones are able to perform their duties for a much longer time than most humans. They can function on only a few hours of sleep and can complete an extended workday without the need for time off. Immunological modifications and enhancements leave clones insusceptible to nearly all human contagious diseases as well as those associated with domestic livestock. In spite of their overall resilience, clones must undergo routine examinations. All clones are trained to inspect their bodies for injuries and anomalies on a daily basis. Without adequate self-care, clones are prone to many of the same issues that humans can suffer from due to poor hygiene. Standard conditioning also requires that they report these to their owners at the earliest possible opportunity. Owners should pay heed to such reports, as clones are trained to be very familiar with their own range of acceptable performance. And clones do not raise issues unless something is outside of their normal range of function. Minor malfunctions are typically addressed in only a few hours at the nearest Genteki copy center. Owners only incur additional expense for such repairs in instances of obvious neglect or extreme misuse. In addition to their self-checks, a biannual routine examination by a professional, available at any copy center, is required to keep a clone's warranty in good standing. Despite their genetic enhancements and conditioning, clone biological systems do have upper limits. Clones are particularly prone to repetitive motion disorders, or 
diseases associated with high levels of stress. But regular examinations serve as a way to identify and treat such issues before they become severe. Standard warranty services include clone monitoring as well as routine surgeries, therapies, and pharmaceutical treatments. In some instances where clones must undergo extended treatment, owners may use a loaner clone from the copy center. When the repairs are deemed more expensive than the cost of replacement, clone manufacturers typically choose to replace the clone. This can be particularly inconvenient for owners who have invested a substantial amount of time and post-conditioning training in their clones. In such instances, more expensive repairs may be considered, although these do represent an out-of-pocket expense. Contagion Responsible owners must keep in mind that an otherwise healthy clone can still carry an infection. Clones are nearly impervious to disease because of their powerful immune system, but are also resistant due to changes on the cellular level. A consequence is that they might carry a virus or bacteria upon or within their body without actually showing signs of a disease. This can range from mild colds to far more serious syndromes. Any time that a clone works with biohazards or even simply dirty materials, owners should take care to have their clone undergo a thorough cleaning. Liberal application of cleaning materials and a change of clothing is adequate to overcome the most common disease vectors. This can be particularly dangerous for any clones that work in food preparation or that have direct interaction with materials intended for humans to ingest, so proper food safety protocols should be observed at all times. Housing Your Clone Excerpted from the Novice's Guide to Clonership An important decision about your clone is choosing its living quarters. If your home is large enough to have a spare bedroom, even a small one, then this is often the best option. Having the clone available in case there is a crisis late at night or very early in the morning can be quite convenient. The costs of leasing additional housing and the ensuing commute add up over time, and if the clone can instead dwell with the owner, the savings can be substantial. Unfortunately, not everyone has sufficient living space, particularly if they have several clones, to perform multiple tasks. In these cases, the best option is to house a clone at either a nearby clone tell or to ship it off to an austere but large clone barrack. Clone tells are often more convenient, and they provide nicer living conditions, which could mean improved clone performance, but they are also much more expensive. Clone barracks are typically used by corporations for housing large fleets of clones, but there is often room for private individuals to lease drawers in the barracks as well. Ultimately, a new clone owner should decide which arrangement best suits his needs by weighing cost against convenience or practicality. Dressing Your Clone Excerpted from the Novice's Guide to Clonership some owners fail to consider that they must plan to provide their clones with multiple changes of clothes beyond the simple uniform provided at time of purchase. Standard coveralls are exceptionally sturdy, but even these become stained and worn over time. New owners should remember that clones do face many of the same biological challenges as humans. Clones must be permitted to routinely bathe, and launder their clothing. When a clone performs a necessarily unclean task, yard work, plumbing, and so on, instruct your clone to sanitize afterward and change its clothes. In many cases, self-cleaning smart fabrics offer a convenient long-term solution that saves time. If your clone is likely to work under conditions of extreme heat, or cold, make sure they have garb appropriate to the weather. 
A clone ordered to struggle in the heat or cold will readily do so, but it might damage itself or contract an illness while undertaking the task. Consistently ordering a clone to labor in such conditions with inappropriate gear is likely to void the clone's warranty. Finally, most owners prefer to have their clones wear something that is more stylish about their residence. But even deeply discounted fashionable clothing can be expensive. To combat that expense, some owners prefer to purchase clones that have physiques similar to their own so that they can wear cast-off clothing. This can have the added benefit that the clone can be used to try on and model clothing for the owner when shopping remotely.